listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. As you're taking your seats there, you might want to go ahead and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, this is probably a good Sunday to mention that we... Uh, Always welcome more help in our children's department. Miss um, Emily would say amen to that, I believe, our children's director. Uh, she tells me in recent weeks we've had 60 and 70 kiddos uh, downstairs across the street. Uh, and so it means uh, all hands on deck sometimes. And the more people that are involved in that ministry, uh, the less often you might have to do it. Uh, it's always our goal that uh, the same people don't have to do it all the time and always miss church. Uh, one of the, the blessings and the benefits of having two services, however, is that uh, uh, you do have an option to come to a worship service and then maybe serve during the, the other worship service. Uh, and so also, uh, our guardian team, uh, hopefully uh, you don't notice those individuals too much, but they're a group of individuals who uh, kind of watch over everything uh, each week in a sense. Uh, they need some help watching the monitor. They, we have a, a number of cameras uh, and so they have somebody in there that kind of watches those each week. Uh, you don't have to be have a law enforcement background or anything like that. But uh, if you can simply uh, kind of watch those cameras, if you see anything that uh, seems out of place or out of order or anything like that, you can communicate with the right people and, and so forth. And so if you can help in that area, uh, check with one of us. If you know Dan Kelly, Dan would be glad to uh, get you connected uh, in that uh, area of ministry. Well, last week we covered the first half of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in our current series through the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you were with us, you will recall that Paul was demonstrating a principle that he taught in chapter 8. Uh, he is practicing what he preaches. And that principle is that love constrains liberty. And though we may understand the liberty that we have in Christ in certain areas, there are times when Loving others in Christ will limit that liberty for the sake of the gospel. Uh, we will relinquish our freedoms and give up our rights for the good of others. Now, uh, this is a subject that is a little harder uh, for us Americans, let's face it, to, uh, to, to deal with. We love our freedom, amen? Uh, and uh, I, I find it difficult to say that we celebrate Memorial Day. Uh, I understand I'm not opposed to barbecue and all those kind of things. Um, it's not something that really, really we celebrate. We remember. Uh, we remember the sacrifices that have been made for us. Um, and so, uh, but, but, but what we want to remember uh, are the freedoms that we have uh, in this nation. And as I mentioned earlier, I think in my prayer, I said, you know, there are Christians all over the world who've never known anything of the freedoms that we have here. Um, it's just a constant struggle as they uh, live out their faith really very much in the margins of society and in some cases very much underground, you might say. Uh, there's still a thing called secret church today. And, uh, and so we need to be mindful of that. And what a shame it would be for us to take for granted uh, those things that we do enjoy. Uh, you should have noticed by now as we make our way through this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth so much of what Paul is teaching here in 1 Corinthians all boils down to the advancement of the gospel. Uh, thus far, clearly halfway through uh, this letter, uh, we find that Paul is laser-focused on that which matters most. 
And so the unity that he stresses here in his letter, the purity that he promotes, the freedom that he restrains is all for the sake of the gospel. And if I had to give this morning's message a title, that's what I would call it, for the sake of the gospel. And so today, let's turn our attention to the last half of chapter 9. We'll pick it up in verse number 15. And so hope that you'll follow along. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you will find it uh, there on the screen. In verse 15, Paul writes and he says, But I have made no use of any of these rights. He's referring again to uh, what he talked about in the first half of chapter 9, this receiving financial uh, support from the Corinthians. He's, he's saying, I'm waiving that. Uh, I'm, I'm giving that up for the sake of the gospel. Nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak... I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all, here it is, for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I want you to think for just a moment of a, uh, of a terrible war, a conflict, The battle has been raging for days, and it's vital that intelligence be passed back to command from the front lines, let's say. And so an emissary is sent. This emissary doesn't have to be told necessarily how important the news that he carries really is, all that is resting upon its delivery. He sets off to make his way through enemy lines. There's really no risk that he will not take, no sacrifice that he will refuse to offer, no hardship that he will not endure in order to deliver his message and fulfill his orders. The urgency of it, the necessity of the message overrides every other concern for him. That is essentially the Apostle Paul. The news that he carries is so vital, so urgent, so necessary that he will surrender everything, give up his rights even, endure the cost to make it known. And I have to wonder if today we see the gospel in that light. I think we're finding more and more, particularly here in our culture, 
that Christianity for many people is becoming more a thing of convenience. When we start talking about sacrifice and giving up certain things, it takes it to a whole other level. And so maybe one reason that we struggle to share the gospel many times is that we have lost sight of really how compelling and glorious and urgent and pressing and necessary the message actually is. It's no longer uh, something that constrains us and compels us and wells up within us with an excitement that we can barely contain. The wonder of it, so great, the glory of it, so precious to us that we simply have to tell, tell the good news. I have to wonder this morning, has the good news for many of us become old news? While we are lost and helpless, condemned before God in our sin, he has acted for us, sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live a life that we could not live, dying a death that we could not die, perfectly paying the price, satisfying God's wrath at the cross instead of us. The gospel in four words is Christ in my place. And that's great news that just has to be shared. I want you to notice, first of all, this morning as we look at this last half of 1 Corinthians 9, Paul's focused calling. Paul's focused calling. Notice he uses the word necessity. Necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And he goes on to say, For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Now latch on to that word stewardship for just a moment. Paul is a steward. It's a a favorite metaphor of his for the nature of Christian ministry. He's already used it in chapter 4, verse number 1, where he says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and what? Stewards of the mystery of God. Now, you may remember that a, that a steward was usually one entrusted with the management and the affairs and the business of an estate. The word in the original language is oikonomos. It's the word from which we get our word economy. And so literally it means a house manager, someone who is given a stewardship. That's the, the language that Paul is using here. He is saying that's what he is. He is a, a steward. He is under orders. He is not free. He is a slave, and Jesus Christ is his master. Paul doesn't preach because he has no other marketable skills. I can remember when I was uh, first called to preach, and I, I first made that public, you might say, first told some of our extended family, and I'll never forget one of my family members said, well, Mike, are you going to get some other education so you have something to fall back on? I thought, wow, <laughs> you don't have a whole lot of confidence in my ability to preach, right? Or, I mean, it's kind of humbling to think of. And, uh, and even during COVID, you know, early on, we were, we were getting emails and hearing things about how this huge percentage of pastors will uh, have to become bivocational because churches will, will decline so uh, significantly and all these things. I'm, I'm looking at Christy going, what in the world will I do? This is what I've been doing for over half my life. I mean, I think I can probably be a greeter at Walmart, but I, you know, I don't have a whole lot of other skills. And, and so th- th- that's not why Paul is preaching, because he just couldn't do anything else. <laughs> that's not what he's saying here. I guess by default, I've got to be a preacher. No, he preaches because Jesus Christ has laid a commission upon his life. Necessity is laid upon me, he says. 
If I do this of my own free will, I have a reward. That is, I can claim some merit in my ministry and demand some sort of recompense from God for my voluntary elective contribution to his cause. But the fact is, I have no choice in the matter. It is not voluntary and elective. Rather, I was summoned by Christ to this task. He is the master. I am his steward. So woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. In the early days of my seminary training, I was required as a pastoral student to attend a pastoral leadership class. And it was, uh, you, you had to attend and you had to be there. There weren't any tests or anything like that. But uh, they would bring in missionaries and veteran pastors and other church leaders to speak to us in this class. And they would just share practical wisdom and experience and all those sorts of things. I'll never forget one guy stood up there and he goes, guys, he goes, if you can do anything else, do it. <laughs> I thought, man, this guy's going to try to talk, talk us out of the ministry, right? And then he said this, he said, but if you are truly called of God, you can't do anything else. And I found that to be true. Now make no mistake, there have been days I would do almost anything else <laughs> if I had the option. Okay, but the truth is, when you have a call of God on your life, you really can't do anything else. In fact, the Apostle Paul even uses the word woe here. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. That's an important word. It evokes the language of the Old Testament prophets. You may remember the language of the, the prophet Isaiah, for example. In the first five chapters of Isaiah's book, he is pronouncing what we call the woe oracles, or oracles of judgment on the people of Judah. And so chapter after chapter there, he says, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Judgment is coming. And then you might remember chapter 6, the one that we're most familiar with as it relates to Isaiah's prophecy. He says, then in the year that King Uzziah dies, the beginning of chapter 6, Isaiah is in the temple and suddenly he sees the Lord and the train of his robe fills the temple. And now at last, this word, this oracle of judgment he has been pronouncing on others, he then proclaims to himself. He says, woe to me. For I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The judgment that should fall on others now, he says, should fall also on me. That's what Paul is saying here. If I shirk the responsibility laid upon me by my master to be a steward of the mysteries of God and to open the gospel to the nations, then woe to me. Judgment will fall on me. This is a necessity. This is a compulsion. This is an irresistible demand that I am not free to avoid. Paul's focused calling. I'm just going to tell you, in the day in which we live, there are so many distractions. So many distractions. So many options when it comes to entertainment and viewing and all of the different things that we can give our attention to. But ultimately, for anyone who claims to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the gospel better be front and center. To our graduating seniors, I would say, whatever vocation you find yourself in, whatever it is you feel God is leading you to do, if it's engineering or if it's teaching in the classroom or if it's law enforcement or construction or whatever the case may be, do it for the glory of God and for the sake of the gospel. Make the main thing 
the main thing. Do it for his glory. You know, we've got this weird dichotomy going on, especially in our culture, where we separate the secular and the sacred. So a lot of people today are content to have this sort of sacred part of their lives where they do church on Sundays and, and maybe you know, are involved in midweek ministry and some of those things. But then the rest of the week, my life is very secular. Really, this sacred part of my life doesn't mix in with the, sacred, with the secular part of my life. It doesn't bear up on it. We're talking about that even in, in, in summer sessions. The importance of a biblical worldview and our faith and our view of Scripture and all those things, it should bear upon every area of our lives. We should view our relationships in the light of Scripture. We should view our, our political engagements in light of Scripture. All of those things. The main thing has to be the main thing. Paul's was a focused calling. Now, I want you to notice the second thing here this morning, and that is a faithful flexibility. A faithful flexibility. Now, let's be honest. Evangelism today, that is, uh, the, the sharing of the gospel. We'll just make it that simple, okay? I know we could give you a broader definition of evangelism. Uh, it is to, to share the good news, okay? The idea is euangelion. It's the word from which we get the word angel. They proclaim the gospel. It's, it's controversial. And we're all well aware that it's increasingly common in our culture, in our society, to consider evangelism to be intolerant and coercive. And if we're really honest, <laughs> there are some terrible examples of people who in their effort to follow Jesus and fulfill the Great Commission, they use very abrasive and coercive means from which we should distance ourselves. Okay, It's like, I'm going to beat you over the head with the gospel. I'm going to cram it down your throat. I don't care if it hurts your feelings. I don't care if you're offended. That, that's the method I'm going to take. And then beyond that, even a careful, gentle, loving, but faithful proclamation of the Christian gospel is oftentimes met with a frustrated, sometimes angry, often equally intolerant reaction in our society, especially when you stop and consider the exclusive claims of the gospel. Because if you truly understand the gospel, you are not suggesting to people that it is one of many ways to spend eternity with God, right? Well, it, it's the best way. It's a, it's a really, really good way. No, it is the way. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And so when you start talking about the exclusivity of the gospel itself... It's offensive to people in many respects. So much so that we can sometimes be reluctant to speak about Jesus. And then there are a range of complicated questions that we have to try to navigate. Like, how do we flex? And I don't mean like the word way flex is used today, you know. You're like kind of showing off. It's like, well, he's flexing. No, I'm talking about being flexible, okay? How, how do we flex to respond to the particular questions and concerns of, of this generation, this cultural moment with understanding and with care and without at the same time making so many adjustments along the way that we lose the gospel altogether. Because the tendency, the temptation is to water down the gospel to a degree that if, if we're not careful, it, it becomes unrecognizable. It's something else. It's not the gospel. And so, on the one hand, how do we engage in frontline mission, 
pressing the claims of King Jesus, calling all people everywhere to repent and come to him with boldness and urgency. How do we do that? Without at the same time confirming the worst stereotypes uh, about Christianity uh, that we find all over the world. How do we endure the suspicion and the hostility uh, of many in our society toward Christianity without wimping out altogether of the task that Christ has entrusted to the church to go and make disciples? Well, Paul helps us think through some of these questions about how can we be faithful and yet adaptable, we would, we would sometimes say relevant, as we minister to others the good news about Jesus. One scholar said of this particular passage that it is the quintessential passage concerning Christian witness in the world. So here is help for us as we struggle to make Jesus known in what we would describe as a post-Christian world. So to give expression to this fire that is lit under the Apostle Paul to reach others, he has developed a strategy to help him do so effectively. We might call it this strategy of faithful flexibility. Faithful flexibility. You see it articulated in principle. If you look at verse number 19, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So that's the goal, ultimately. It's the advancement of the gospel. He wants to win people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He wants to see them saved. And he is willing, he's now telling us, to be remarkably, personally adaptable to accomplish that goal. He will be the servant of all, even though he is free from all. That is to say, Jesus Christ is my master. And I'm willing to serve you for Christ's sake. I'm willing to humble myself so that you may come to understand and know my Jesus. And so Paul, in verses 20 to 22, he gives us examples of how he works that out in his own ministry. He says to the Jew, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, that is, under the regulations and the the ceremonial law of of the Mosaic Covenant, he became like one under the law, though he himself was not under the Mosaic economy any longer, in order to win those who were under the law. Though not free from the law of God, he says, altogether, but under the law of Christ, that he might win those outside the law. So now he's primarily uh, dealing with Gentiles, to these, these Corinthians, to the weak. He became weak. You remember he referenced the weak uh, in chapter 8. Those who had weak consciences and were offended at the at kind of the careless, cavalier use of Christian liberty that was taking place at Corinth as it related to this meat offered to idols. And so Paul is saying, I will gladly give up my rights, stand with my weaker brothers, if I might win the weak. You see the two sides of Paul's strategy here? There's flexibility, and there's faithfulness. He's remarkably flexible, even though he has now come to understand through the gospel that Christ has satisfied the ceremonial regulations of the Mosaic law. When he's ministering to Jewish people, he will flex and adapt and gladly adopt those old Jewish customs that were once so very familiar to him so as not to give offense and win a hearing for the gospel. And then, as he was largely amongst these Corinthians, ministering to Gentiles, those not having the law, he was free to not worry any longer about keeping kosher, for example, 
not being under the ceremonial requirements of the Mosaic law, but because Christ has fulfilled it for him. And so now he can serve among them almost as though he were a Gentile himself. There's incredible personal adaptability and flexibility, seeking to identify there uh, the major concerns and the stumbling blocks. And fundamentally, he's asking this question, how can I avoid giving undue offense so that Christ and the cross alone might be the only offense that I ever give? I think it's important for all of us. You know, a little gospel sensitivity would go a long ways. And I'm not talking about a mealy mouth, compromise the gospel, change the message, you know, you know, spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down kind of concept. You know, let's just sweeten the deal so much that we lose the gospel itself. That's not what Paul's saying here. I think back to a time, uh, again, where I was, uh, I had an opportunity to be a chaplain in the juvenile detention system over in Denton County, Texas. And, um, I'll never forget the first few weeks I went in. It was just a whole other world for me. By the grace of God, I'd I'd never been incarcerated. And um, I I remember one of the first weeks I I brought in an easel. Um, We didn't have some of the technology at that time that we do today. And so I had to, and they wouldn't let me bring it in because it had like some pointy tips on the bottom and stuff. And it's like, they can use that for a weapon to, you know, like beat you. Uh, you know, instead I'm like, okay, cool. I'm, I'm cool without the easel, whatever. Um, And so it was just like a, a, a totally different world for me. And I realized that these kids, some of them just scared to death, maybe incarcerated for their first time. Others had a pretty long rap sheet already. And we're probably getting ready to go away, like for a while. And I realized that we come from two very, very different worlds. And when I would press in a little bit and I would ask them questions about some of their beliefs and things of that nature, I realized that that, that many of these kids had lived much of their lives in survival mode. I'd never lived that way. Man, I come from a middle-class suburban family. I never wondered where my next meal was coming from. I never considered stealing from somebody so that I could have a meal. I I never knew what that was. So I left after those first two or three times thinking, you know what? I need to try to understand the world from their perspective a little better if I'm going to effectively minister to them. Now, that didn't mean the next week I walked in there trying to, you know, talk street lingo or whatever. <laughs> no. But, but I did want to see the world from their perspective. And I think many times when it comes to sharing the gospel, we're reluctant to see the world from somebody else's perspective. Why do they bring this anger and this angst and this, this opinion to, to the gospel and to the claims of Christianity? Maybe it's because they've been incredibly hurt by a person who claims to be a Christian. In some cases, it was a pastor or a youth leader, or whatever the case may be. So you got to find this kind of this common ground. And that's what Paul is doing here. So he's not saying that he's free from all constraints. His flexibility is not absolute. He doesn't simply study the culture, find out what people want, what makes them tick, and then give them that. No, he doesn't simply try to identify what these people want and then give it to them that he might recruit more to his own tribe, his own perspective. He's not looking to, to make followers of Paul. No, he, he is under the law of Christ. That is, his conscience is captive to the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. Jesus dictates and governs both the message and the method. The limits of what is and is not acceptable. And I know there are a lot of, a lot of different methods being used today to reach people with the gospel. And some of them, I'll be honest, i got to look at them and go, eh, 
Not sure if that's a great plan. Back in the day when I was a teenager, there were these organizations who were doing these, quote, beach reach things, you know? She's like sending these young teenage guys out to witness to girls on the beach. Uh, a few years later, as I matured, I thought, that might not be the greatest plan right there. I, 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 don't, I don't know. You know, there's obviously things we look at and go, may not be a lot of wisdom in this. Okay? And, and then there are some areas where we have some freedom and, and some may be, you know, feel comfortable uh, sharing the gospel in a certain context where others would not. I think the bottom line is this. Are you willing to set aside even your preferences for the sake of the gospel? Because many times we get mixed up on the difference between a preference and a conviction. Fundamentally, a, a, a conviction is something for which you would die that is non-negotiable for you. A preference, on the other hand, is just that. It's a preference. The problem is, a lot of times, we make our preferences convictions. And we say, this, this is such a strongly held preference of mine that I think it should be everybody else's conviction, and I think that they should be willing to die for my preferences. That's a dangerous place to be. And so we see Paul, the apostle here, he's, he's, he's trying to get the balance right. And sometimes that can be hard. Faithful flexibility is hard to do, hard to maintain, and the, the stakes are high. If we are flexible and adaptable without due regard for scriptural faithfulness, what will happen? We lose the gospel. We so dilute the gospel that it's no longer the gospel. But if, on the other hand, we are only concerned about stating truth with precision and not concerned about communicating it with any kind of sensitivity or relevance, then what happens? Our message is quickly misunderstood, and it's dismissed right out of the gate. Sometimes fear makes us overly cautious about flexibility, and at other times our eagerness to make a difference and an impact for Jesus makes us impatient with doctrinal precision. So you've got to find this balance, this faithful flexibility. The challenges are real. And Paul manages to, to wed these concerns together in a strategy that is strong and effective. Faithful and flexible. And he, he sums it all up. If you look at verse number 22 when he says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Notice those kind of sweeping universals. How many times he uses the word all in that little text? All things to all people that by all means I might save some. So many of you are aware of my story. Um, how in the, the providence of God I worked my way through much of seminary uh, on a dairy farm. Um, I won't go into all the details of that story. I'll just say that a lot of sermon illustrations came off the dairy farm, okay? Um, and there were, there were a lot of days, especially at 4.30 in the morning, in the winter, in northwestern Pennsylvania, where I thought, Lord, what in the world are you doing with me? Why am I doing this? Um, but what I was gaining some knowledge that I wouldn't have otherwise had. And it wasn't until, in some cases, years later, when I'm having conversations with farmers in, in our ministry in East Texas and even in South Texas, that I'm going, hey, I'm having a reasonably intelligent conversation with a farmer right now. I could identify with some of the things he's struggling with and some of the issues that he deals with as a farmer. I wouldn't have had that had I not worked on that dairy farm. 
in Springboro, Pennsylvania. So sometimes you got to try to find some common ground. And that means for some of us who, who are a little older, okay, that, that maybe sometimes we've got to kind of enter into a world where we're not just real super comfortable, okay? Like, like, like maybe it would be time for you to kind of enter the gaming world for just a little bit so that you would have an opportunity to share the gospel with your grandkids. And, and we can think of any number of things where it's like, I, I, I might have to come to a place where I can relate to them in some respect. If we're always trying to share the gospel on our terms, then that limits our effectiveness in sharing the gospel. Again, I'm not talking about compromise. I'm not talking about compromising the message. I'm talking about the way that you go about sharing the message. And then I want you to notice finally this morning, number three, future reward. Paul is really using one of his favorite metaphors, his images for the Christian life here, where he says that like athletes running in a great race in in an ancient Greco-Roman arena. And in the passage, you might say that Paul adopts the stance of of an athletics coach, giving us a training regimen that that, that we might run our race and win the prize. And I want you to notice the, the target at which Paul himself takes aim in all the discipline and the training through which he puts himself. What is it that he's looking for? Well, verse number 24, make no mistake about it, he, he calls it the prize. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run in such a manner with such an attitude that you may obtain the prize. Now, verse 25 tells us a little more. He says, athletes train so hard to receive a perishable wreath. He has in mind the the victor's laurels, they would be called, the crown with which the winner uh, in an ancient athletic contest was rewarded. And he wants to contrast the perishable wreath that runners and wrestlers and boxers in ancient Greek games uh, competed to win with the imperishable prize that Christians are to pursue. It's rather bizarre, but he probably has in mind here the Isthmian games, which would be like the the forerunner of our modern-day Olympics. And the crown for the Isthmian Games many times was a wreath of, wealth, uh, 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 of, uh, of wilted celery. So you train hard, you know, you kill yourself, giving yourself to this strict training regimen. They would restrict their diet. They would restrict sexual activity, a, a lot of things. I mean, a radical approach, just like many modern-day athletes. I mean, they get on this training regimen, and it's, I mean, you're dedicated to it. They're sticking to it. All for what? To have some salad put on your head. I mean, think about that for just a moment. This, this perishable prize is the point that he's making. Now, in some cases, historians tell us they were also given tax-free status for the rest of their lives. Some other things that would be a little more appealing, I think. But all of those things were perishable. They're not eternal in nature. So when we finally cross the line, so to speak, when by God's grace we finish the race marked out for us, our Lord will reward us with unfading glory, eternal reward. There's a a prize to be won, and Paul personally presses hard after the prize that he might take hold of it. He's actually spoken about this whole concept, this subject of rewards in the Christian life already in this letter. You might remember back in chapter 3, verses 11 through 15, the metaphor a little different there, but the point that he's making, very similar. 
He said, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, referring to the return of Christ. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved only through fire. He's talking there about the bema. Much like the, 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 the multi-tiered stand that you see Olympic athletes stand upon. First place, second place, third place, gold, silver, bronze. That's kind of the concept there. So he's talking about these rewards, a reward, an imperishable reward for, for which the scriptures call us as Christians to work and strive at which we are to take careful aim. Now don't read this and think, well, I, I'm looking forward to getting to heaven so I can set up my trophy room so all my friends can pass by my incredible mansion on Glory Street and look at my trophy room. That's not what this is about. In fact, we need to recognize the ultimate prize because Paul holds out another motive for us. He says in verse number 24, run so as to win the prize. The prize, when you cross the finish line, is a motive. It's an inducement to cause you to run in a particular way. So run in such a way that you may win the prize. Reward, the promise of rewards, it's legitimate, even an important reason for growing Christian obedience. Now, part of the joy of the promise of reward is that the Christ, whose work for me some 2,000 years ago at the cross that makes me want to love him and serve him, is himself the reward given to me for the love and the service that I offer him. Isn't that amazing? He's the prize. He is the prize. The same Jesus who gave himself for me at Calvary and who saved me and keeps me still and is changing me by his grace is the same Jesus who will give himself to me in a fullness of sweet and intimate and unbroken and unending fellowship forever. He himself is our hidden treasure. He is the pearl of great price. He is our very great reward. Not to look forward to, uh, to, to just, again, gathering up these rewards so that we can show them off. No. We're not to just look back to the work of Christ uh, in the world to come. Jesus is the prize. And Paul has his sights trained on winning the prize. And he takes careful aim at it. And so that's why he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse number 12, I love this. This one thing I do. There is that laser focus on that which is most important. Forgetting those things which are behind and straining forward. Picture a runner stretching every muscle forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I want to win the prize. I want to take hold of the promise of reward, of being with Christ and knowing him fully as he knows me. 
every time I watch a track meet and I see those sprinters particularly pushing across the finish line with everything they've got, that's what I think of. A band of Christians, Christ followers, flexing, striving, setting aside personal freedoms and preferences and things of that nature, finding common ground on which we can share the gospel with a lost and dying world until we finally and fully cross the finish line for the glory of God. Spend eternity with Him. He is the prize. He's the prize. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.